please feel free to make use of one of the Bibles in the pews. And we are on page 100, 814. 814, that's where we're reading from. And it reads as follows. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. And that was a great reading of God's word, wasn't it? Was it not? That was a great reading of God's word. Uh, a very warm welcome to you if you're here for the very first time. My name is Reggie. Uh, we'll be opening up God's word to us tonight. Um, very first thing I want to say before we come to uh, talking about the, the passage is first, uh, there's supper straight after the service. So uh, please consider sticking around for that, especially if you're here for the very first time. Just know we've got a meal on the house for you. And straight after the service, there'll be a few people that are there just to get to know you and introduce you to our church as well. Uh, something else I want to bring to your attention is um, is style is actually, uh, as you heard, Paul, uh, for anyone who feels like they're young enough, it's actually for people who are around 23 to 35. So if you're around that age group, uh, whether married or single, uh, it doesn't matter where you are, just consider coming through to that ministry. We meet here every Wednesday, as you heard from Paul. Now, something that we're doing tonight is we're beginning a new series. Uh, you've probably heard us saying this over and again in the last few weeks. This series is called Follow Me. It's a series in the book of Matthew, and in this series we'll be discussing discipleship. That's, that's what we want to focus on. As a church, we realize that this would be a great series to start the year with because as a church, we believe that what God has called us to do as, follow, as followers of Jesus is to make other followers of Jesus. So that's, that's what we want to be about. That's our goal for the year. We want to be followers who make other followers or disciples who make other disciples. And so we thought this would be a great series to start off the year. So if you are uh, part of the family, just know we want you to understand more and more what it means to be part of the family. If you're not part of the family, you're here for the very first time, this is what we would like you to know. We love introducing people to Jesus's family, and we would love for you tonight, or at some other point, to eventually become part of this family. So consider to join us as we go through this series in the book of Matthew. What I'll do now is pray, and then we'll begin our time together. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you have shown us your great mercy. Uh, you showed us mercy when we were still sinners and far off from you. We do thank you, Lord, that you as the doctor, you have come to heal us. And that when we turn to you, we can know that uh, we can be healed. And so, Lord, tonight as we begin this series, would you help us to understand clearly what a follower of Jesus looks like and what a follower of Jesus uh, lives like. So, dear Lord, as we turn to your word, would you speak to us through the power of your spirit? And this we have prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie Unbreakable, released in 2000, there's a character named Elijah Price. Elijah Price was known as Mr. Glass, was born, or from a young age was diagnosed with a very, very rare genetic disease, a genetic disorder that renders or makes his bones extremely weak, that makes his bones extremely fragile and prone to fracture. See, Elijah Price was told, he and his mom were told, he could have an average life, inverted commas, with good disease management. But his disease was incurable. 
as some of us here tonight might have had a friend, a family member, or a colleague who went to see the doctor, or perhaps whose wife told him, hey, you know we've got medical aid, go and see a doctor, because you know that you're unwell. And then this person got to the doctor and perhaps got news that is much worse than this. See, when the person got to the doctor, the doctor dropped the dreaded news that you have a terminal illness. Your illness is progressive and stage and incurable. And so if you live three to six months, you should thank God. Now that is awful. Is it not? It's awful. Now, now did you know? Did you know this? Now, I think you guys would because you guys are smart. Or well, most of you are smart. I think you would know this. You would know that at one point in history, many of the diseases that we have today that are considered to be curable were once deadly. Did you know that at one point, if you got Spanish flu, your doctor would come to you and tell you it's time to get your affairs in order? Now, for us today, that is mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling that flu would ever be considered deadly. Well, except if it's man flu. I mean, well, no. But flu, deadly, no, come on. Even if it's Spanish. But Spanish flu was once deadly. So much so that one of the articles I read said this. So terrible was its, oh, its hold among the peoples that whenever it was mentioned, it produced mental images of mass graves. Spanish flu. So at one point, if you got flu, if you got rabies, or if you got dysentery, your doctor would come to you and tell you, it's time to put your affairs in order. So we thank God. We really thank God that today we have cures, we've got treatments, we've got vaccines for all these diseases that were previously deadly. But you see in our text tonight, in our text tonight we're told of a sickness or disease that mankind cannot and actually will not ever be able to find a cure or treatment for. They can't. See, no matter how advanced our our technology and science may be, we we will never be able to find a cure for this sickness. Even if the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation decides to fund whatever project we'll have, we will never be able to find a cure for this disease. It is impossible to, to eradicate this disease on our own. And you see, when you read through the story of the Bible, what you see, what you realize is all of mankind is infected with this disease. That all of us, like Elijah Price, are diagnosed from death with this disease. Actually, let me take it a step further. One of the poets in the Bible says this, before he was conceived, before there was fertilization in his mother's womb, he was sick with this disease. He had this disease. See, every man on earth is sick with the fever of sin, with the blindness of sin, and is overcome by its its by its fury. So all of us here tonight are terminally ill. All of us are born terminally ill. But our story here tonight also has good news. Our story presents good news to us. And as we go through the the passage, we will see this good news as we go through Matthew chapter 9. So turn to Matthew chapter 9 with me as we discover this good news from the passage. Now, as we go through this passage, I should let you know we will have four points. And usually with a narrative, it's, it's, it's usually hard to have points uh, because you want to tell the story. But these points are there as hangers for us to be, able, to be able to follow the story and remember what is being said here. So four points as we go through this passage together. Here's the very first point. The first point is the follower. And we'll read verse 9. And I'll also make mention of verse 12 and 13. Listen to what verse 9 says. Verse 9 of chapter 9 reads as follows. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the, at the textbook. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now the very first thing to ask there as you look at that passage is, where is there? 
where has Jesus passed on from? It is important for us to see that, that that phrase actually tells us that there's something that has happened before this. That phrase calls us to consider, to stop and consider what Matthew has said so far in his installment of the story of Jesus. And so, previously on Matthew's Jesus story, these are just a a few recent highlights. Matthew has told us uh, that Jesus stood by the mountain teaching one of his most famous sermons. This This sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus taught about the countercultural or upside-down nature of his kingdom. That his kingdom is unlike anything we would expect. And moreover, thereafter, Matthew tells us that Jesus shows his power. He shows the power of his kingdom, Matthew chapter 8, by healing the sick and demon-possessed. And you see, the last person that Jesus heals before our text tonight is a paralytic as he enters his hometown, Capernaum of Galilee. And so Jesus, here, is walking around his hometown. He's walking around his hometown and he sees this man called Matthew. And as we see in the text, he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Now it is interesting to see that Jesus' interactions with people after his sermon on the mount, the kind of people he's had interactions with are people who are considered outcasts or rejects. These are people who are sick, paralyzed, and demon-possessed. Some of these people are people who have come to plea for a family member who is sick. And so at first sight, when we look at this passage, Matthew doesn't seem like an outcast to us. He's not physically sick. He does not look like he's an outcast. But you see, in Matthew's society, the kind of job that Matthew does makes him an outcast. See, in Matthew's society, a tax collector was considered to be morally sick and morally bankrupt. Moreover, they were considered to be traitors. They were backstabbers. Because during this time, Israel was occupied by Rome. Actually, occupied is a very nice word. Israel was oppressed by Rome, so Rome is the oppressor. And what Rome would do is they would get a couple of local guys who would work as tax collectors, who would collect tax text for food, text for drink, text for travel, for property, and more. And this text would be taken and given to Rome. None of it would be used to benefit the people there. And you see, for the tax collector to be able to make a living, he would text the people or ask from them much more than was, what was required. He'd ask for much more. And you see, you couldn't decide, I will not pay these guys, because one, they worked for Rome, and two, they had methods to get money out of you. If you remember Olakasha. If you remember Olakasha from as good as good as nice. Some of you would remember that character. They had methods to get money out of you. It has actually been said that entire villages would depopulate just to get away from a tax collector. So it's hard. It's not too hard, I mean, to imagine that tax collectors were not liked. Or rather... They were really hated by the people. See, the closest modern-day comparison of it is not even SARS. The closest modern-day comparison of it in terms of hatred, how people felt about tax collectors, would have to be Mbimpi, an informant during the apartheid days. Someone who takes information about some of the activists in the community, people who are heroes, people who are trying to work for the liberation of the community, who are trying to work for the freedom of the community, and what these people would do is they take that information and give it to the oppressor. And the oppressor would come and do what they need to to, to stop that very work. Now, if you've watched any movies, if you've watched any documentaries, perhaps you're old enough here to know this. Perhaps you would have seen how these people were dealt with. They'll be necklaced with a tire, and then petrol will be put over them, and they'll be touched while they're alive, just to show the hatred that people had for them. Just recently, my wife and I watched a movie called Galushi, and in this movie, just as it begins, there's a scene where a guy gets stabbed in the passage, and a bit later, you find out that he's an informant. And as they sit and have a conversation, none of the guys except Galushi seem surprised that that guy was dead. That, that, that's, that's normal. That's what he deserves. 
That's how the community treated someone like that. Snitches get stitches. You've heard. And here, here's Jesus saying to, saying to Matthew, Matthew the tax collector, follow me. And at this moment, you can, imita- you can imagine Peter and the other disciples gasping for air at the terror that Matthew was joining them. Jesus, just wait. Hold up. You, you know what this guy does, right? I mean, look at him. Look at where he's standing. He's standing at a tax booth. You know what he does. He's a traitor. See, Jesus, when you touched the leper a few days ago, we thought you had gone too far. But this? Surely not. See, the Jewish people saw tax collectors as worse than lepers. They were, they were the bottom of the pile. But Jesus calls Matthew and says to Matthew, follow me. And Jesus points it out so clearly as we see in verse 12 and 13. He has come for people like Matthew. But who are people like Matthew? I think that's the question we've got to ask now. Who are people like Matthew? Well, if you read the story of the Bible, and you read this story in the context of the stories that have come before, and if you read the whole Bible, you realize that actually the tax collector, the leper, the paralytic, and even the Pharisees are all the same. They're all the same. The morally sick, the physically sick, and those who look like they are well put together are all the same. And here's why. All of us, as I said earlier, all of us are born with this inclination to move away from God. All of us are born sinful. It's at conception, we are sinful. But, but how did this happen? How did this come about? Well, as, as you continue to read the story of the Bible, you will see that at the beginning, God created a good world. And when he created this good world, he created a man called Adam and Eve. God created this good world and kept them to live in this world. Adam and Eve were the mother, were the father and mother of all humanity. But they decided to be traitors. They decided to betray God, to backstab God by choosing to live life their own way instead of God's way. They decided to turn against the Creator. And so thereafter, everyone was born, was born with this inclination to be a traitor, just like them and just like Matthew here. So sin and brokenness entered our world, rendering all humanity internally and terminally ill. Now, you, you may sit there, or we may sit here tonight and think, oh, so it's their fault. Well, not entirely, because you and I, if we were in the same situation, we would do the same. You know how I know that? You and I have rules or standards, standards that we have given ourselves, standards that we have put in order not to harm ourselves or harm someone else. But you and I know very well that we can't even keep our own standards. And the reason why we can't is because deep down inside, all of us are morally and spiritually corrupt. Our hearts are defect. Our hearts are twisted. Our hearts are wicked. All of us are spiritually sick. And you see Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount then points out how how this sickness expresses itself. He points out that this sickness expresses itself in anger, lust, murder, gossip, and adultery. And actually, this is what he says. The person who's angry at his brother is as good as a murderer. The person who lusts after another woman or another person is as good as having committed adultery. They're like the adulterer. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. All of us are terminally ill. And you see, Matthew realizes that. He realizes his utter brokenness and his desperateness for Jesus to save him. See, it's not like he can hide his sin. I mean, Jesus has found him in his sin. Jesus found him at a tax collector's booth, betraying his own people and turning his back against God. He, he can't go away and get himself sorted before he comes back to God. He can't get himself 
good enough for God and then come to Jesus. He can't. And it's not like that's what God expects. It's not like that's what Jesus expects. See, Peter realizes, Matthew, I mean, realizes that he's a sinner in need of mercy. That he can't do anything to save himself. And here's the thing. Jesus, the good doctor, the great doctor, has come for people like him. People who know that they're sick. See, no one, no one goes to the doctor if they're feeling well. I mean, doctors at this time made house calls, so they'll come to you. Either way, whether they came to you or you go to them, no one goes to the doctor and gets there and says, I just came to tell you, uh, I'm doing well, eh? I'm very healthy. Everything is pashash. I'm good. No one does that. There's a person who realizes that they're sick, that turns to the doctor. People like Matthew who know they're sick and need a doctor and know that if nothing is done, then there's an end that's worse than death. Physical death. There's an end that's worse than this. And it is eternal death. It is the judgment of God. And here's the thing. Jesus came for people like that. People who know that they need him. People who know that they need to be saved and healed by him. As the great physician, Jesus is willing and he is able to forgive and heal. I don't know if you know that Zulu hymn that goes as follows. Now, I was tempted to sing for a little while, but, but, but I won't do that. Uh, the hymn goes as follows. Inyanga inkulu ikonala okama lingu jesu. Umlula misi opanzila kanimla lele ujesu. Lipi eli. Can't sing. Great hymn. But perhaps you have heard the, the hymn in this way. The great physician is now near. The sympathizing Jesus, he speaks the drooping heart to cheer. As you go down, your many sins are forgiven. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. My Swahili people, how does it go? Tabibum kuhuyu, did I say it properly? Ask Panai to help me with the Shona version. See, this great hymn reminds us, as this passage does, that there is a great physician. A great physician who's willing and is able to heal us. A great physician whose very mission and purpose was to come and save people who realize their great need for him. And you see, Matthew listens. He listens, and we see it in that passage because it tells us, he rose and followed See, like the paralytic, a bit earlier in chapter 9, the paralytic whom Jesus says to take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. The paralytic whom Jesus realizes has got a greater need than walking. Like the paralytic whom Jesus says, take, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Rise up, pick up your mat and go. Matthew does the same. He follows. He listens to this great physician. So if you're here tonight and you have not yet turned to him, listen to this hymn. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. There's a great physician who is able to heal all who see their desperate need for him. See, if you want a clear, a clear example of what a follower of Jesus looks like, if you want a clear example of a Christian, what a Christian looks like, it's the person who realizes their deep need for Jesus. And here's Jesus calling them, saying, come follow, I am the great physician, I am able to heal and save, and that person follows See, it's not like that person is well put together. That person has realized their great need for Jesus. And they've trusted in him. They've turned to him. And perhaps you're here tonight. And it's the first time that you realize that like all of humanity, you are spiritually sick. Well, here's what Jesus wants you to know from this text. There's forgiveness available for you tonight. You don't need to change before you come to him. Come as you are. The great physician is able to heal. Let me quote the words of a famous movie. This is what Jesus is singing over you right now. This is what Jesus says. I know who you are. 
I know what you want. If you're looking to be saved or healed, I can tell you I have the authority to forgive sin. I will look for you. I will pursue you. I will find you. And I will save you. That's what the great physician says. He can save you as he did Matthew. The follower is the one who puts his hands up or hand up and says, Lord, I need you to be saved. I need your mercy. That is our first point, the follower. Now let's move on with the text, with the story, and go to our second point. Our second point and third point won't be so long, and fourth one as well. The second point is the fisters. The fisters. Let's read uh, verse 10. Now the fisters is the crowd, the people whom we will see in verse 10. Let's read verse 10 together. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were, recli- and were, recli- were reclining ooh, with Jesus and his disciples. See, that verse there points two things out to us. See, that verse is teaching us something about Matthew's lifestyle. It's teaching us something about what has happened to Matthew. But it is also teaching us something about Jesus' teaching and Jesus' kingdom. Uh, Let me start with Matthew. Matthew and the crowd. Notice with me that as we read the passage, the scene has changed. We're no longer at the text booth. We are now at a house. People are sitting. And they're eating. Now, there have been lots of conversations about whose house is this. Is is it Jesus' house or is it Matthew's house? Now, you could push it either way, but as you read the text, it's quite clear that it's Matthew's house. It's reasonable to think that it's Matthew's house. Matthew, as the tax collector, is wealthy and would have been able to cater for people of of that group, of people that large. But something else, look at the crowd. Many tax collectors and sinners. That, that gives you an idea that these are Matthew's friends. So it's Matthew's friends. So the text makes sense if we think this is Matthew's house. Now, there's something that Matthew teaches us here that I want us to see. Matthew teaches us something about evangelism and how to use our resources for the kingdom of God. So look at what Matthew does in this verse. So we see what I mean about evangelism and, evangelism and resources. Look at what he does. We are told there are many tax collectors and sinners who came and were reclining with Jesus and with his disciples. So it's clear that Matthew opens up his home. He, he opens up his home and gives out his resources and invites his friends and his friends who are the many tax collectors and sinners to probably introduce them to Jesus. And to tell them of his newfound faith. See, Matthew does that there, here. He, he, he invites these people to come and see who Jesus is and to come and know about his newfound faith. This is what I mean about this teaching us something about evangelism. Very often, I think, when we think evangelism, we think what is expected of us is to walk around and talk to random people, whether in the streets, in the bus, in your, uh, whether in the train, or in your, when you go shopping, that's what we think evangelism looks like. Now, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to walk out and talk to people in those areas. But, but what this verse shows us, and I think what you see as the story of the gospel and the story of the church, church progresses, is that people actually use their personal networks to let the gospel spread. They use their personal networks, whether it's a familial network, This is people in their family, a geographical network, people in their neighborhood, vocational network, people at their workplace, recreational network, people that they hang around with, their friends, commercial network, people at the shops. See, all of us, as we go through this passage, all of us should see that we have our own personal networks. We have our networks, and we should consider how are we using these networks as followers of Jesus to bring others to follow Jesus as well. 
I'm sure you've heard in the last few weeks, we have been saying that our vision as a church, which lines up with God's word, is we want more followers in the family to make other followers. We've said this over and again. And, and we believe that the experience of someone who's experienced God's mercy is that they in turn go out and want to show the same mercy to others. So followers make other followers. It's inevitable. It, that's what should be happening. If you're a disciple, you should be making other disciples. That's your lifestyle. That's, that's what should be happening. And so Matthew here teaches us how to use our resources, how to open up our homes to introduce others to Jesus. But now let me pause and ask you this. How, how do you think you're doing with that? How do you think you're doing with leveraging your networks, with leveraging or using your resources for the sake of the kingdom? To draw others who are not following Jesus to then begin to follow Jesus. Let me ask you this. Are you really following Jesus? See, followers make other followers. And for them, it is a great joy. It is a great joy because they have experienced God's mercy. And want others to experience the very same mercy. Now I said this also teaches us something about Jesus' teaching and his kingdom. And to just get an idea of that, just a glimpse of that, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 8. And I'll read verse 11 uh, all the way up to verse 12. Verse 11 reads as as follows in Matthew chapter 8. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I want you to see that that verse there points to us to God's great banquet. The banquet, the meal that God will have with all whom he has redeemed at the end. And you see Jesus here in sitting with these people who are considered sinners, in sitting with these tax collectors, gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse of what that will look like. Jesus, the Messiah, God's promised king, sitting with those who were outside of the kingdom, who have now been given the invitation to be part of God's kingdom. See, as we read through that passage, we should see how Jesus gives us a glimpse of that day when we will all stand with God, all those who have turned to him, when God will welcome us to his eternal feast, a feast where every longing will be satisfied. Every longing is satisfied by God himself. But but as we look at the text and think about our time together tonight, we have the Lord's Supper. And and in the the Lord's Supper, what we see is Jesus breaks bread uh, and points to the disciples, to, to the work that he would do for them at the cross. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus also says that this very same meal points to the fulfillment that will come at the end when we will have this great banquet with God. And so tonight, as we take the communion together, be reminded not only of the cross, not only of the past, but reminded, be, be reminded of the future, that God will ultimately come back to take us to be his very own and to enjoy this great banquet with him for eternity. That is our second point, thinking about the crowd the feasters. Our third point is the frowners. Uh, these are Jesus' critics. Let's read verse 11 together. And when the Pharisees saw this, they saw what Jesus was doing, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, not everyone was happy with Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. See, the Pharisees were were outraged at what Jesus was doing here. See, because a meal, a meal was a sign of companionship. A meal was a sign that you are welcoming someone into your life 
whether as a guest you are welcoming them or you are the invitee who then joins in in this meal. That there's companionship, that there's welcoming of each other. And and I think you and I get this idea. We we get that a meal symbolizes more than just eating. And I'll point this out to to you. Uh, A few years ago, we... We had just met Black then. It must have been a, a few, like a few months or so. We went to visit Black in, in, in Tembisa, our, our neighborhood, where both of us grew up. And, and when we got there, we were, it was myself, David, and another guy called Masimba. When we got there, you do what you usually do when you get to the township. You have a kota. So we bought a kota and we ate, and it was great. Straight after that, Black says to us, hey, I'd, I'd like you guys to meet my family, the rest of my, my family. Uh, there's a, an event they have a ceremony on the other side. Well, won't you come with me? And we go. And when we get there, we are ushered into the kitchen. Oh, well, we, we meet everyone, and then we are ushered into the kitchen. And when we get to the kitchen, a meal is prepared to us, and the meal is brought to us. And one of my friends screams, no! He says, no, no, no. And then we're all just in shock. Like, what is he doing? Because for us culturally, it doesn't matter whether you ate two, five minutes ago. If you walk into someone's house and they offer you their meal, it's a way of them welcoming you into their home and their life. And you're also welcomed as well. So we, we were quite shocked. And although as you look at this scene, you see that Jesus is a guest in this meal, it, it is quite clear who the focus of the event is. It's Jesus. If, if there's anyone who's doing the welcoming here, it is him. He's welcoming the tax collectors and sinners into his kingdom. And the Pharisees are outraged. They're outraged. How can he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Does he not know that the law says, uh, that the law says a clean and holy person, especially someone who's a rabbi, keeps away from anything that is unclean and unholy. Why does he eat with unclean people? Now, now you and I at this moment might be tempted to think that the Pharisees are party poopers and that they were wrong. But, 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 but they were actually respected people in the community. They were respected teachers of the law. And in their effort, and what they would do in their effort to get to know God's word more and to keep God's word, what they did was come up with extra rules to try and make sure that they and the people around them could keep God's word. Now, this seems like a good desire. And they're not wrong in pointing out that Matthew and the sinners are unclean. But you see, in their desire to know and keep God's word at all costs, this desire made them callous to anyone who did not keep God's word. And so they would not be compassionate. They would not be merciful to anyone who failed to keep God's word. And so they look at Matthew and his friends and, and sneer and think, why does Jesus hang out with them? He should be with us. And you see, this lack of compassion this lack of mercy towards others, that this lack of compassion that they, that they failed to show others was indicative of the fact that they had not truly understood how God had dealt with them, how God had dealt with these people in history, that God has always dealt with these people in mercy or with mercy and compassion. See, what we see here is the Pharisees have a broken vertical relationship. They have a broken vertical relationship with God. They have not understood God's mercy. They cannot even see how they need Jesus to be saved, which is why they separate themselves, not only from the sinners, but they separate themselves from Jesus. Look at what they say, your teacher. They do not see that they need to be saved. They do not see their need to be saved by Jesus. And so this broken vertical relationship is reflected in their horizontal relationship and how they treat the people around them. So Jesus shows them that they're not any different to their forefathers. There's a passage that is quoted for us there. We will not go to it. The passage is is Hosea chapter 6. We will not go to that passage. And and this is what happens in Hosea chapter 6. God's people... 
God's people lived their own way and they brought sacrifices to God. And they thought that God was blind to their sin, that God was blind to their adulterous way. But God could see that their hearts are far from him, that they are unfaithful, that they're cheaters. And the kind of voice that is used to describe Israel at that time is their harlots, their prostitutes. They've turned to worship all other gods and they've turned their back on God. And then they come back to offer sacrifices to God and think God will be pleased with that. That God will be pleased with these sacrifices. So the comparison that we should see with the Pharisees is that the Pharisees, just like their forefathers, their hearts are far from God. Their hearts are far from God. See, at the heart of keeping God's word was their own pride and their own self-righteousness. See, they prostituted themselves at the altar of self. It was about them and not about, and not about God. They made things about them. And Jesus wants them to see this. He wants them to see that they have not truly understood God's word. They've not truly understood God's word, which is why he says, go and learn. Because you see, once you've experienced mercy, once you've seen how God has been merciful to you, in turn, you become merciful to those around you. And the Pharisees were the opposite of that. And this shows us that broken vertical relationship, which is shown in their broken horizontal relationship. And you see, you and I, you and I too many times are like the Pharisees, in that having experienced God's mercy at times, we're very merciless, or we, we don't show compassion towards others. And it's actually indicated in a number of things. When someone has sinned against you, you and I know how we keep a grudge, how we hold on to a grudge when someone has sinned against you. I can't believe Reggie did that. can't believe he did that. And we don't realize that at, point, at pointing at that person's sin, we don't realize that we ourselves are sinful. And we ourselves need God's mercy. Now, here's the thing. It's not like you don't walk up to the person and make sure that they know how they've hurt you. But the way you and I hold on to grudges, very often we lord, as the Pharisees did here, people's sins over them. We lord people's sins over them. We don't show them mercy or compassion. And very often, even when people have not sinned against us, when someone has a particular sinful event in in their past, We hold on to that event and we lord it over them and forget that we ourselves have been shown mercy and ought to show the same mercy. Now the other ways is that that we show this mercilessness is by looking at people around us. And I think most of us have done this. When we look at someone and think, them, I don't think Jesus can save them. Uh, Not them. That uncle, that family member whom you think, no, they're too far off for them to experience God's mercy. Somehow we think their sin is worse than ours. And the other way it's indicated is through the people we associate with. We decide to keep ourselves from anyone else who's not like us, anyone whom, whom we might consider to be unclean. Perhaps that colleague whom everyone knows always causes conflicts, that colleague who's always angry, that colleague who's got a scandalous past, whom we've decided we're going to keep away from them so that everyone does not think we are like them. We stay away from them, and we don't realize that in our heads what we are communicating is, actually, they need God's mercy more than I do. Their sin is much greater than mine. See, what you and I often do is also prostitute ourselves at the altar of self. And as we read this passage, we ought to see that those who have experienced God's mercy, those who have been called to be followers, ought to experience, ought to share or show out the same mercy. Now, our last point, our fourth point, we'll read verse 12 to verse 13. Our last point is the feature or the characteristic of someone who's been called. 
the characteristic of Jesus' kingdom, how does it look like? And as we go through this very passage, what I'll do is give us a number of practical ways in which we can show mercy. So let's read verse 12 to verse 13. But when he heard, but when he heard it, this is Jesus, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus pointed out so clearly that those who are, those who belong to him, those who have experienced his mercy, then in turn become merciful. Here are a number of practical ways in which we can show mercy. I'll give you the first two, which are how we can show mercy as a collective, as a church together. The very first one is, if you were here on Wednesday, you would have heard us talking about our vision as a church. Uh, perhaps you were here this morning and also heard it. But if you have not heard it, don't worry, Royden will be up here next Sunday and will explain the vision of the church to us once again. See, in our vision of the church, this is what we said. We realize that as the church, we find ourselves in a context, a context where there's lots of people who are filled with brokenness. And one of the ways that you see brokenness is in the lack of education all across Africa. And so as a church, we made it clear, we have said our vision is we don't, we don't exist in isolation. We don't pull ourselves away from the community and from the brokenness that we see. Rather, we want to be involved in bringing about a change. And one of the ways that we are doing it is through the different schools or is through education and through the different schools that we have. So Love Trust, which is our mercy arm as a church, has helped us to be able to, to show this very same mercy we have received to others, to those who do not have good quality education, to show mercy to them in this way. And perhaps you're sitting here today and you're hearing that. See, one of the ways in which you can be involved is to find out how, how can you be uh, at, in, of help in this vision? How can you be a, of help as we walk alongside Love Trust? How can you be involved in what the church is doing? How can you be involved in the mission and the vision of the church? I think that's the first thing you can think about. The church already has practical ways to show mercy. How can you be involved in that? The second way is through our mercy ministries in the church. We often donate clothes and non-perishable food, and often our pantry runs out. And so as a way to express mercy to those who are less fortunate, we realize that this is the way we can get involved. Perhaps you can raise up your hand as well and say, I've experienced God's mercy in saving me. The others are far off. Physically, I can show him that same mercy by giving in this way. The third way you can show mercy is through our small communities that we have here at church, our different life groups. Perhaps you have someone in your life group who's just lost a loved one. Someone is going through financial turmoil. Someone has lost a job. Or someone who's just emotionally downcast. Would it not be great to invite that person over to a meal? Or would it not be great to prepare a meal and send it over to them? To open up our homes, to use our resources, to show the same mercy we have received to others. Or even have lunch with that colleague that everyone tries to stay away from. Chances are you'll find out that the reason why they act like that is because there's a lot of difficult things they're going through in their life. And by listening to them, you might have an opportunity opened to share the gospel with them so that they might find out about Jesus. The fourth thing, which is our second last thing, is which is pointed out in Jude 1 verse 23, we show mercy by snatching others out of the fire of sin. See, one of the ways to show mercy is by taking alongside a friend whom you know has a particular sin that they struggle with. And that if they go to a particular area, they might be tempted to fall into that sin. Perhaps visiting a boyfriend or girlfriend, which we're not condoning. But we know people do that. 
But perhaps one of the best things you can do to look out for a brother, to look out for a sister, to show mercy to them, is to tug alongside with them and ensure that you keep them accountable, that you are walking alongside them. But it will be... But it will be inexcusable if I left this very last thing. The way that we show mercy to others is also by sharing the gospel of mercy by which God has redeemed us through. So you have networks, different networks in your life. Would you consider in the next week or so, to use those networks to share this gospel of mercy, to share this gospel about this king, about this doctor who has come to redeem sin-sick people. Let me close with these words. A follower of Jesus is someone who understands that he or she is sin-sick and needs mercy and so turns and listens to Jesus as he offers his mercy. And then in turn, turns towards others who are sin sick, who need the same mercy, who live in brokenness, and show them the same mercy, and then call them to, f- to be followers of Jesus. A follower of Jesus calls others to experience the same mercy. I'll call David now to take the Lord's Supper, and as it comes up, I will pray for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight we would have truly seen how you have shown us your mercy in redeeming us while we were sin sick. That like, like Matthew, you called us as we were, and that you redeemed us and brought us to yourself. Our Father, we pray that now that we have become followers, that we may in turn show others the same mercy, either by sharing the gospel with them or by, by being physically involved in their lives and showing mercy. And Father, my prayer is for anyone tonight who has not yet turned to embrace your mercy, that tonight they would have heard your offer to follow you. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.